Father, we're so grateful uh, to open your word now, uh, this special week ahead of us, and uh, to remember uh, not just the, um, the events, uh, the giving of Jesus, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection, but to peer behind the curtain and remember again the, the theological realities that you were working through these events so that God and sinners could be reconciled. And so we, uh, we look to you now, help us as we meditate on one of those aspects uh, that this would uh, lead us to worship and great thankfulness in Christ's name. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday. Uh, it is the start of what is sometimes called Holy Week or Passion Week. And of course, when we use the word passion, we're not thinking about passion like we use it today, like a, a strong desire, but passion as it comes from the Latin verb for suffering. So this is the week of suffering or Passion Week is where that word comes from. This is Christ's last week on earth leading up to his death and resurrection. And, and you know, it's essential as we begin this week that we prepare our hearts. We're going to have a special uh, Good Friday service and, of course, our, our Easter Sunday, our Resurrection Sunday service. And, and what we want to do is, is go into this week meditating and, and reading and thinking about the significance of this. Now, probably for many of you, this is like, you know, you've had decades of remembering the resurrection, remembering the crucifixion, and uh, maybe for some of you that are newer Christians, you're still trying to get your arms around what, what is the holiday about, and, and how do we celebrate it, and, and what's the significance. So, so whether this is your first Passion Week, or if this is decades of celebration that you've been seeing over your years, we, we, we don't want to go into this week wasting the event. And, uh, and that can happen real easily just from familiarity, just because uh, we kind of know a lot of this already. So how can we prepare for Passion Week? Well, the way I want to do that, I want to prepare you and prepare us for Passion Week by, by remembering um, one particular aspect of what this week is about. As we prepare for the week, we remember that the cross has a context, We could call it this. There's a canvas behind the cross. And if you don't see that canvas, and if you don't see and realize that that context, sometimes some of the events and the narratives and the the passages and the songs even we're going to sing are not going to make as much sense as if you see it in its context and in its on top of the canvas that it is. And, you know, we need to think long and hard about that this week. And, and the part of the, the cross, the part of this event that I want to particularly look at is one of the darker parts. This is the part of Christianity that we often don't like to think about, and, and a lot of Christians, frankly, don't even talk about. But it's an important part of the story. Uh, the topic I want to focus on in preparation for Passion Week is revealed in the shouts of the people as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He comes in on the donkey, they're laying down their coats, they're laying down the, the palm branches, and what are they shouting? Did, did you remember from the reading a moment ago, what are they shouting? Hosanna. Do you remember what that means? Yeah, see, right? We all know that's what they said, but what does it mean, right? And, and, you know, they're excited about it, so we assume that's something that they're excited to share. Remember, Hosanna is is kind of a word we borrow from the Old Testament. Hoshiana, which means save us now. They're shouting as Jesus comes into the streets as the king, save us, save us now. 
And they also are saying things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're quoting the Old Testament that, that that save now or Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, verse 25, which was a psalm where the writer predicts that the Messiah is going to come. And what is he going to do? He's going to save, right? Jesus saves. We know that. But the question is, now, now think about this. How can they say that on Sunday and then kill him on Friday? What sort of salvation were a lot of those people picturing? Talk to me here. It's okay. A political salvation. When they're saying, save now, here comes our king, save us now, they're thinking, save us from the Romans. Save us from these... It was a political salvation. And then, of course, when, when Jesus says, no, that's not my plan... They decided that they didn't like their king anymore and rejected him. Remember what John says in the first chapter of John, chapter 1, the gospel? Jesus came to his own, and his own did what? They did not recognize him. They rejected him. And so, so that's what's going on here. So, so there, there, it's not a political salvation. It's not save us now from Rome or, or politics or, or something like that. When the Bible predicts save now, salvation... When Christians say to friends, you need to be saved, what are we talking about? We're talking about salvation to be rescued from God's judgment, from sin and all its consequences, right? That, that's what we mean. And that's one of the things that we're going to focus on this week because that's what the cross is all about. That's what the crucifixion and resurrection are all about. It's salvation. It's being rescued, not from a political leader or an invading country, but we need salvation from the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin. So come with me to the canvas behind the cross. What I want to do this morning is to talk about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and why we need this salvation. Why do we cry, save now? Because we need salvation from God's wrath and God's judgment. So somewhere in here, look at this. I have a handy-dandy little clicker. And uh, what I want to do is, is anchor our thoughts around four questions. We call it, we'll call this four questions to investigate the wrath of God or four questions to investigate the judgment of God. And, uh, it, you know, Pastor Terry and I, most of us typically when we bring a message, we're looking at one little section of Scripture, working at it verse by verse. And uh, so I'm going to do that, but I'm going to use lots of passages. So we're going to look at several different texts to try to fill out uh, what is this wrath of God? What do we need to be saved from? And going into this week, why ought to we to be thankful for the fact that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us so that we could be saved? So four questions to investigate the wrath of God. The first passage I want to take you to to investigate the wrath of God and its significance is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll try to give you a time to get there because we're going to go through several passages um, if you get tired doing that, that's okay. You just sit back, relax. I'll read the passage and you can listen, okay? But uh, if you can follow along, I think you'll benefit even more. So here's question number one, the canvas behind the cross, four questions to investigate the wrath of God. Here's number one. What is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? And, and Paul, as he wraps up this first letter to Timothy, he's got this little 
doxology right at the end. He's, he's been exhorting Timothy about uh, church leaders and how to handle situations and, and dealing with false teachers. He's talked to him about the gospel and unity and love. And as he gets to the end of his letter, he's going to launch. And he is going to describe for us God in all of his glory. Paul's going to run out of vocabulary to try to explain what God is like. And, and that's where we start. When, when we ask the question, what is God's wrath and what is judgment and why do we need to be saved? We, we don't start with judgment. We start with the character of God. Okay, so you with me? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Try to answer the first question, what is the wrath of God? Uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Um, I guess we're in the middle of a, of a statement. Let, let's back up in 13, okay? I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who's testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's our verse, verse 15, verse 15 which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, now watch this, who alone possesses immortality and who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternally, eternal dominion. Amen. The Bible teaches here, as Paul uh, launches into his doxology, concluding his letter with Timothy, he reminds us what God is like. And you'll notice here, he says here that God dwells in inapproachable light. Think with me about that. That's a light that's so pure, so bright, so free of impurities, that he is utterly unapproachable. He's that holy. He's that pure. He's that sinless. He's that righteous. A being that is so good and completely committed to what is righteous. We would say he's holy. He's other. He's pure. And of course, he's not just holy. He's what? He's holy, 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 as the Bible says. He's other, other, other. He's unique. He's awesome. He's, he's amazing in his being and unapproachable in his purity in his holiness i read i read this last week about um did you guys hear about the eclipse that's coming there is a total solar eclipse coming in april of 2024 and you'll be able to see it the whole thing the whole total the whole eclipse you'll be able to see right here and every year when we do this people do dumb things about that they try to look at the eclipse without some sort of you know, protective lens or device. And you can burn your eyes if you do that, even if it's partially eclipsed. So don't do that. But I was, I was reading about this eclipse, and I love all things astronomy, and I was reading about an eye doctor who once treated a man who was hopped up on some you know, LSD trip or some crazy drug that he was on, and he stared at the sun for four hours. Don't do that. And the doctor said it was like he burned a hole in the back of his eye, legally blind now because of that. And that, that's, that's the metaphor here Paul uses. God is so bright, so pure, so holy, so righteous that you can't approach him. Remember what, remember what Isaiah says when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up in his holiness? What does he say? 
I'm dead. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the king. I'm dead. Because he's holy and we're not. Right? That's the picture here. John says in 1 John 1, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. No sin, no stain. He is intrinsically capable of even the slightest hint of anything less than our perfect, than perfect holiness, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So, so out of that holy, perfect, sinless, unapproachable nature, God loves righteousness and justice. He loves what is right. He hates evil, wrong, and everything sinful. Isaiah 61 says, for the Lord loves justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And scripture tells us that God sees the poor and those who are experiencing injustice, like the orphan and the widow, and and who are taken advantage of, people that are mistreated. He sees the abused. He sees the afflicted. He sees the persecution. And they bring about in him a set disposition to punish evildoers and to bring about those who do wrong to justice. He's good and he always does good, the scripture says. He's perfect. He's inapproachable. He's holy, holy, holy. He is the essence of justice and he is the mold and model of righteousness. And he cannot and will not do otherwise. Behold our God. And it's out of his moral perfections, out of that short summary of, his, of the description of his character, that we begin to understand what is God's wrath. If that's what he's like, and that's what he loves, then God is going to be passionately opposed to anything that is out of alignment with his holy and good character. And that's where wrath comes from. Wrath is not an expression of God having a bad mood or getting upset because he's frustrated. No, the wrath of God is a calculated response against all things that oppose his holiness and his righteousness. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay, so I'll give you a definition. It's in your notes here. God's wrath is his good and right punishment of sin which flows from his perfect moral goodness in both his manifest love for what is right and his utter hatred for what is sinful. It's a function of his goodness. It's an outworking of his holiness and righteousness. But listen to A.W. Pink, the theologian. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Did you get that? That's what it is there. Um, it, it is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Now, now we have to qualify this because God is not like us. It, it's not God in a bad mood. It's not God gets irritated. It's not he's frustrated. And so he lashes out in his frustration. No, God's, God, God's wrath, God's justice is is a is a um, a function of his holiness it's a manifestation of his goodness uh, Wayne Grudem the theologian says this God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin you know this is child abuse month did you know that you see the blue ribbons all over the place awareness of child abuse what would we think of a judge 
who after a child abuser has been tried and found guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt evidence, the jury has figured all that out, what would we think of a judge that just lets that, that convicted child abuser go free? We would say it's a breach of justice. And in the same way, God's wrath, God's judgment, a function of His goodness, a function of His righteousness, is committed to the punishment of all that is opposed to Him, of all that is good and holy. Okay? So that, that's, that's wrath. That, that's what wrath is, and that's why it exists. It's a function of God's holiness and a function of His goodness that, that goes into action against anything that is out of alignment with God's righteous and holy ways. Okay, so that's question number one. Question number two is, why is there wrath then? Well, that's what it is, but why is there wrath? And I'm going to take you back to that passage that I read a moment ago in Romans chapter 1. I'll give you some time to get over there. Romans chapter 1. Uh, you all are experts on Romans chapter, or on Romans, because Pastor Terry did such a great job unfolding that for us. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Let's think back to those early chapters here. In Romans, I won't read the whole thing again because I read it just a moment ago. But Romans 1 tells us why there is wrath. We know what it is, but now let's talk about why is it present? Why is it a threat to us? This is, see, this is the canvas behind the cross. These are some of those theological realities that the crucifixion and the resurrection don't make sense if we don't understand this background, Okay? So why is there wrath? Well, look with me at Romans chapter 1. We'll just read the first verse here again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Stop right there. God's wrath is both a future threat, but it's also an ongoing reality. We'll see that here in a moment. But right here, Paul says the wrath of God is already being revealed. Why is it being revealed? Well, look what it says there. It's being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, see here, here's, here's what happened. God made people in his image and likeness, right? You know this, that's what Genesis tells us. And God made us to know him and to walk with him and to love him and to be like him and, and to live his law and, and to uh, practice his commands and, and to joyfully have a relationship with him, right? That's what God made us to do. But right here, Paul says God's wrath is being revealed because humanity has rejected their God. We've rejected that plan. And uh, as the Bible says, we, we've all turned aside. We've all gone our own way. We, we've rejected our God as creator to some other form of worship. Now, you know, you notice here, as I read this a moment ago, the text tells us that God's wrath is coming because humanity has rejected their creator. And notice, look down, look, just look back at, at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, this is not talking about those other guys that live next door to you or the world out there. This is an indictment on all of humanity. You've replaced God in your life. I have replaced God in my life. We've rejected our Creator collectively. And uh, as it says here, we, we all have a, a inborn worship disorder, don't we? 
We love in our selfishness and our pride and our arrogance instead of worshiping the God who made us and walking with Him to turn and worship something else. And you see that all the time, right? People worship a relationship. They worship their job. They worship a sport. They worship a feeling. They they worship a thrill. They, They long after a dream. They put all their hope in all these other things, they put all their affection and time and love and money and effort into these other things and they make their, they wrap their life around that instead of around the God who made them. And that is the occasion for why God says, my wrath is being revealed and it is even coming. Because we worship and serve other gods. This wrath-bringing exchange that all humanity commits is no small issue to the Creator. This is what the Bible describes as idolatry. It's it's the perverse giving of our exclusive allegiance and worship to somebody else other than God Himself. It's also an act, according to the Bible, of cosmic treason. This is not just a worship issue. This is a loyalty issue. This is a serious offense against God. In fact, the Bible's going to use the metaphor of adultery, a spiritual adultery, to define what we all do in rejecting our Creator to go after other things. This is a big deal. God says wrath is coming because we have spit in the face of our Heavenly Father who made us. You say, well... Uh, That doesn't sound good, Pastor Keith. How do I know if I've committed that offense? How do I know if I'm guilty of that? I mean, you're saying all humanity, but maybe I'm the exception. Well, look at verses 29 and following. The Bible gives us a description of the symptoms. Well, let's look at the symptoms. Filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Does that cover all of us? It indicts us all, doesn't it? We've all been infected with a fallen heart, with a a sin nature um, that causes us to reject our Creator. So so you see, why is there wrath? Wrath comes because we've rejected God. Wrath comes because we've rejected our Creator. You say, well, what comes about? What's going to happen to people like you and me that have rejected our Creator? Well, let's keep reading. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The judgment of God, the wrath of God. We know we are guilty. We know we deserve wrath for our deeds. We prove it every day, every hour, every minute. We prove that we fully deserve the wrath of God, and we are not wholly devoted to Him. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, none of us are standing. We're all indicted. We're all guilty. Look back at Romans chapter 2. Look with me at verse 3. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? What's he saying? No one escapes the wrath of God. You might look at your neighbor or your friend or a family member or a co-worker and say, well, but they're a lot worse than I am. 
And God says, you think that's going to change it for you? Because we're all guilty, aren't we? We we, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Now watch this. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So God's wrath is already being laid out. We see that because we see fallen humanity living in sin. But here Paul says, but there's also a coming day of wrath. It's also an event when God will judge all people based on his holy standard. And what does he say here? The longer people rebel against God, the longer they continue in sin, the longer they reject their creator. What happens to wrath? It gets stored up little by little by little. By little. It, it's, almost like, it's almost like the Bible says you have a container. You have a cup. You can't see it, but it's there. And with every thought in rebellion against God, with any, every word, with every act, God is putting a little bit of wrath in that cup, a little bit of judgment in that cup. And little by little, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, that wrath stores up. That judgment stores up for the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God who, who one day will render everybody according to their deeds. See, the canvas behind the cross is not a pretty one, is it? It's a dark canvas. It's a serious canvas. It's a canvas that says, God is so holy, I can't approach Him in my sin. God is so holy that He must punish our sin, our unholiness, our, our anti-godness, our lawlessness, that He must punish those things. And He, he warns us about the, the fact that we're storing up wrath for ourselves. So we've talked about what wrath is. We've talked about why is there wrath, because we've rejected our Creator. We continue in rebellion and, and godlessness. Let's ask a third question. What is wrath like? Maybe this wrath thing isn't so bad. Maybe God grades on a curve. Maybe this is just shock treatment. Maybe this is just God saying things because He's trying to manipulate us back into good behavior. Well, believe it or not, from Genesis to Revelation, God gives us pictures of His wrath. And I want to show you two of those pictures. Okay, can I do that? Follow me back to that dusty, sticky place in your Bible called the Minor Prophets. And look, look with me at the, the book of Nahum. You say, where's that? Go to, go to the halfway point in your Bible. That's probably the book of Psalms. Start turning to the right. Get to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the big books. And then you get to the little prophets, the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay, I'll give you a minute to find it. See, the Bible not only tells us what God is like and what wrath is, and it not only tells us why there's wrath and warning us about its coming, the Bible paints pictures so that we can understand at least... At, at some, some human level, what God's wrath is like. This is not something 
that we want to take lightly. Are you, did you find Nahum? Are you there? Great. It's a great book, by the way. You need to read it. If you're, you're like, Nahum, I didn't know that was in the Bible. You need to read it. Nahum is Jonah part two. You know Jonah, the guy with the fish and all that? It's, this is Jonah part two, Nahum, and you read the rest of the story. But we won't get into all that, but, but what I want you to see here, Nahum starts off as he preaches to Nineveh, the same uh, city that Jonah preached to, and um, in, in Nineveh, uh, and, and he's going to remind the Ninevites of what God is like. God has judged Nineveh for their sin. Remember in Jonah's time, they repented temporarily, and then they went right back to their wickedness in the subsequent generations. So in Nahum, God is pronouncing judgment on the Ninevites. And he's going to give them a description of what God's wrath is like. Okay? You with me? Look at this. Nahum chapter 1. The oracle of Nineveh, or excuse me, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Watch this. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. This is one of those places in your Bible that if you looked at it in Hebrew, if you looked at it in the original text, it would leap off the page with a lot more enthusiasm as what I just read. If you look at this in Hebrew, it says three times in a row. It's almost like holy, 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 right? It says Yahweh is avenging. Yahweh is avenging. Yahweh is avenging. That's who he is. And he's coming to bring vengeance, to bring wrath on his enemies. Now look at this. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You missed it. Look up. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So if we think we're going to be the exception, we need to heed the word of God. Now, watch this. Here's the picture. Picture number one is a storm. Look at this. In a whirlwind and a storm is his way. God's vengeance is like a gale force wind. It is like a powerful storm. And, and, and you know what? This is, this is tornado season in North Texas, isn't it? We've already had some that, that have hit uh, north in the metroplex there. We, we've had high winds that have provoked forest uh, uh, grass fires and, and large-scale, out-of-control fires. God's, uh, Nahum says that's, what's, that's what God is like in the day of judgment. He's like a powerful storm. He's like a gale wind. He's like a tornado. Look at this. And the clouds are like dust beneath His feet. This afternoon, look up in the sky. You see those little, little clouds, little speckly clouds. You think that, that's like the dust on the feet of God in the day of wrath. That's how big He is. That's how powerful He is. Verse 4, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He, he dries up all the rivers. Even the most powerful sea, Nahum says, would, would completely dry up with just one word from God's lips. He could do the same for all the raging rivers of the world. In just one word, they would be done. Look back at the text. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. See, all of those those three places were places that never went into drought conditions because they had such great water supplies. They were fertile, well-watered, practically immune to drought. And God says, all I have to do is snap my finger and they dry up. 
That's what God's power is like. Verse 5, mountains quake because of him. It's like an earthquake. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand, Nahum says, before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire and the rocks are broken up by him. All because God has showed up in his military attire to judge his enemies. Who can rise, Nahum says, in the burning of his anger? Who can stand the day of his wrath? The answer is nobody. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He's like a fire. He's like an earthquake. He's like a severe thunderstorm. He's like a tornado. He's like the awesome... See, guys... The, the, the awesome power of weather is like the Lego set illustration of what God is like in the day of wrath. And as horrible as floods and tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes are, that, 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 that's, a, that's a drop in the bucket of what God is going to be like in that day. That's picture number one. Let's look at picture number two. Turn all the way to the other end of your Bible, to Revelation. God's wrath is not only like a storm. It's not only like a hurricane, a tornado, a raging fire, a whirlwind. Look at verse 14, chapter 14 of Revelation. I'll give you a second illustration. Second illustration of God's wrath. God's wrath, according to Revelation, is like a a full cup of poisonous wine. A full cup of poisonous wine. We're gonna we're gonna parachute into Revelation 14 here. So let, let me let me explain what's going on here in the context. Because Revelation is hard to understand. We're we're in that place in Revelation where the great day of tribulation has arisen. A great time of rebellion. A great time of of sin. Uh, leading up to uh, the leadership of the Antichrist before the second coming of Jesus where he brings judgment. Listen to the description that our writer gives us in Revelation 14 verse 10 describing the wrath of God in the day of judgment. Listen to this, chapter 14 verse 10 of Revelation. He, talking about all those who are loyal to the Antichrist, all all the people that have rejected Jesus, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. See, wrath is like a cup of undiluted, full-strength poison. Flip the page to chapter 16 for a moment. That's 14. Flip to 16. Now we get to the end of the tribulation. This is Armageddon day. This is the final battle day. Revelation 16 verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the city of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. This is undiluted, full strength, poisonous, destructive wine that represents the wrath of God. Do you remember the picture of Romans 
every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed, a little bit of, of wrath goes in that cup. We all have that cup, right? We all have a cup. And the more we reject, the more we sin, the more wrath goes in that cup. And what does Revelation say? One day sinners drink the cup of their own deserved wrath. You say, how serious is this? It's so serious that God changes the name of humanity. In Ephesians chapter 2, God says they're not called children of God anymore. They're called children deserving of wrath. So we ask a fourth question. Is there any hope? Turn with me to Matthew 26. The canvas behind the cross is dark. The the canvas behind the cross is ugly. It's serious. It's dangerous. It's real. When we say... We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. What do we mean? We need to be saved from that. You know, if a kid is flailing his arms and hands, sputtering in a pool, and he says, help me, we know what he means, right? He needs rescue from drowning. Well, humanity doesn't need rescue from drowning. Humanity needs rescue from God's coming divine wrath against their sin. And it's sobering and it's serious. And every thunderstorm that rolls through Hood County is a reminder of that. Is there hope? Well, this Friday, we're going to remember the crucifixion of Jesus and the events leading up to that. And my guess is we'll probably read this passage somewhere along the way. Let me give you a preview. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. Chapter 26, verse 37. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And so Jesus goes on a little bit beyond them. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this... What? Let this cup pass from me. And he repeated that prayer. And then he said what? But not my will, but yours be done. What's in the cup? The wrath of humanity. The wrath that we deserve. What's Jesus going to do when he goes to the cross? He's going to drink it for you. He's going to drink it for me. Every thought, every word, every deed, every bad motive every lustful glance, every profanity, every impure motive, every sin. Jesus says, I'll take that wrath for you. And a few hours later, he did that. He drank the undiluted, 
poisonous, full-strength cup of wrath that you and I should have drunk. You see, how extensive is the wrath of God? If you and I drink our own wrath, our own cup, it takes all of eternity to pay for. The Son of God drank down to the dregs and drained it in one afternoon. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the cry of the Son of God drinking the wrath that we deserve. Are there sins that still haunt you from your past? Are there things you still feel guilty about? Are there things you're struggling with today and you wonder, does God still love me? Does that disqualify me? You know what this week is about? He drank it all for you. It's been paid for. It's been satisfied. He drank the cup of wrath that I should have drunk. You know, it's, we're going to do communion on Friday. It's no accident that when we do communion, we pass a cup. Cup has wine juice in it. Same picture as Revelation. Say, what's the cup all about? Do you guys know the gospel is about substitution, right? Me as a sinner replaced with Jesus, the Son of God. He takes my wrath. He takes my sin. He's my substitute. I get his righteousness. He gets my sin. It's all about substitution. There's a substitution of cups too. That's why we do communion. Because in communion we say this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, which means you and I will never, ever drink the wrath of God that we deserve. And instead, we have a daily, regular reminder every time we pass that cup that that cup represents the blood of Jesus that's cleansed us from that wrath for all time. So we take a cup of life instead of a cup of death. There's a substitution of cups as well. The only cup a believer will ever have to drink is a continual reminder of life. The Bible calls what we're talking about when Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that we deserve. When he drains the cup of God's judgment, it's poured out on him instead of me. The Bible has a word for that. It's called propitiation. When my kids were little, trying to teach all this stuff to my kids, it's like, how do you, how do you propitiation? I can't even spell that, let alone teach it to somebody, right? Remember this. Propitiation is a sponge sacrifice. Remember that cup that has wrath in it that's going to get poured out on you? Jesus is the rescue sponge. He provides a sacrifice that absorbs that wrath like a sponge. So it doesn't fall on you and it doesn't fall on me. Propitiation is a sponge sacrifice, right? And uh, we have a little tradition in our home. We have a little, little board where we put up uh, little reminders of the work of Christ. And one of them is the sponge sacrifice, propitiation that saves us from the wrath of God. Grudem says it is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in doing so changes God's wrath toward us into favor. So here's the deal. We deserve wrath, we get favor. We deserve punishment, we get mercy. We deserve judgment and in Christ we get grace. 
So that's the canvas. That's the backdrop. That's the table setting to understand this one Passion Week verse. Okay, see, that was all introduction. That was introduction. So here's the Passion Week verse. Turn with me one more time to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. With all that introduction, look with me one more time at Romans. What are we celebrating this week? Here's what we're celebrating. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Are you there? But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. You know, many people struggle with the wrath of God, but what they don't realize is that God uses the greatest outpouring of His wrath on His Son to demonstrate His love for us, doesn't He? John Stott summarizes, It is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God Himself who in the person of His Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took His own loving initiative to appease His own righteous anger. Hear hear that again. God took His own loving initiative, listen, to appease His own righteous anger by hearing it in Himself in His own Son, when He took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. That's what the week's about. Wrath satisfied. Wrath satisfied. You know Romans 1, or Romans 8, 1? Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And can I just encourage you, if you are clinging to Christ, that is true for you. There is no condemnation, no judgment, no danger, no threat. It has been fully and completely satisfied in Christ's sufficient sacrifice. If you don't know Christ, this is a clear and present danger that every thunderstorm Every act of weather event reminds us that this wrath is real and that it's coming. Listen to how Nahum says it. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. You can seek shelter from the coming storm that is God's wrath by running to His Son that is a shelter from the storm. And that's exactly what this week is about. That's what the life, death, and Jesus and resurrection are about. A provision for God's wrath and the danger of that. Every second of your life is a grace God gives you of time to repent before His wrath comes. So we'd appeal to you to take mercy, take comfort, take uh, shelter in the storm that it, or from the storm that is in Jesus himself. Well, let's pray.
Uh, Father, we thank you that um, as we come to this week, we see that the Jesus narrative, the cross, Easter, Good Friday are not just rituals that we go through. These are not just fun, familiar stories that we read. That these events, th- these events are about a rescue from the most serious danger that humanity faces. And how we thank you for the Lord Jesus who rescued us from wrath, from judgment, when he offered to bear that penalty for us. And Lord, might we cling to the cross, cling to the old rugged cross as the hymn says, to know him, to rest in him and know that there is no condemnation, there's no future danger or threat for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, as we meditate on that this week for the incredible love and the incredible gift of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.